Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John 6 and verse 16. This is the Word of the Lord. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we come to your word, that you would feed us and strengthen us. Lord, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So Jesus withdrew from the 5,000 men he miraculously fed when he perceived that they were going to take him by force and make him king. And he was not about to suffer that kind of demotion. His kingdom is not of this world. And so when the people attempt to inaugurate him as, as the king of an earthly realm, he refuses and he flees from them. And then the next thing we read about is the Son of God walking on water. If you doubted whether his kingdom was spiritual and heavenly, he provides you with a display of his power that shows he is not bound even by the physical rules of this world that, you know, inexorably govern us. If there was any question about his power, his authority, and his kingdom, it would have been clarified in the minds of his disciples at this point where he is walking on water. It's the evening of the day in which Jesus fed the 5,000. His disciples go down to the sea, and they're intending to travel to Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore um, of the Sea of Galilee. They are currently on the northeast shore. In Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus urges, literally it, it says constrains, the disciples, to get in the boat and travel on without him. He's like, he's pushing them into the boat to get them away. Perhaps perhaps they were in in agreement with the 5,000 trying to take him by force and make him him king and, and didn't yet understand the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. And so he's, he's pushing them into the boat, getting them to move on. This crowds are dispersing, and he's making sure that they disperse. James, John, Andrew, and Peter, you know that they were all fishermen. 
who would have known how to handle a boat. They had uh, experience doing this work. They were, their fathers had done this work before them. So often, the conditions when sailing can change very quickly. I mean, get on a little lake, you know, around here, and conditions can change quickly, and, and you're suddenly in trouble. But go out on the Sea of Galilee, which is 600 feet below sea level, and it's sort of just a wind tunnel. Go out on a, a lake like Lake Superior, and you can get in trouble really fast. Okay? It's now dark. The boat is out to sea. Jesus is not with them. And they don't have any modern electronic devices. They don't have navigation help, except for the stars and whatever landmarks they can make out. And the winds begin to pick up, and the conditions rapidly change. Ryle, Ryle says on this situation, he, he makes this rich observation. He says, the simple circumstances of the disciples being alone in the boat, on the sea, and in darkness has been felt in every age to be an instructive emblem of the position of the Church of Christ between the first and second advents. Like them, the church is on a sea of trouble and separate from its head. So they're out there bobbing around, straining against the oars, and Jesus has compelled them to go in this boat and isn't with them when, when they need him. And he's separate from them. And Ryle says, this is like the church now, the church between the advents. By this, he says, Ryle says, we learn to know the value of Christ's company when we have it. By the discomfort we experience when we don't have it. This is not to say that it would have been better for uh, Christ to stay with us, or if Christ had decided to stay with the disciples, reigning as that earthly king, perhaps, because, because then the Spirit would not have been given to us. So, though Christ is not with us in his physical presence, God is present with us because the Spirit is present with us. Right? Remember what Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? So this is, the, the Spirit is with us. But the Spirit we don't see. The Spirit is a Spirit. So dear brothers and sisters, the church is, is not cast about in the sea, in the darkness. The church is guided by the Spirit who will sustain her until Christ returns to abolish all rule and authority, right? So let's not forget the powerful ministry of the sovereign spirit today. The spirit is guiding the church, right? He will guide the church through every era of darkness, every distress, every stormy sea, and bring her safely through until the last day. Uh, what will the spirit do until Christ returns? John 16, 8 through 11 says, and, when, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. 
and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's what the Spirit is doing now. Nonetheless, the goal is to be with God, right? Returning to the paradise lost in Adam's fall. Only this time that return to paradise will be a paradise plus because there will be no possibility of sin. The goal is to live in the redeemed and restored earth where the kingdom of Christ is the only rule and the only authority. So yes, we are lacking something when Christ is absent. We are not forsaken, but we are certainly lacking something that we uh, will have only in our final rest. Until then, we will live in the midst of darkness and storm, persecution and exile as strangers and aliens. Not forsaken, but in a stormy sea. Into the midst of the storm, the scene turns to the disciples. They're struggling against the oars of the boat for three or four miles, right? The text says, which, which in a storm could have lasted the whole night, those three or four miles, right? They are undoubtedly fatigued. They're fearful, wondering if they would die, and they are wondering if they can take another minute of the winds and fatigue, and then they are astonished to see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. Jesus walking on the sea. He's getting close to the boat. This would make little sense to the apostles. This would be very, very confusing to them. They would perhaps at first think that they are hallucinating from fatigue and fear. Here was Jesus walking on the water, unmolested by the wind and waves, doing what no man can do. He's not bound by the rules of nature as you and I are. Right? We have only and ever had our feet slip through water, right? And unless it was frozen. But look, some might find these miracles of Jesus too much to believe. The deists, right? The, the deists can't handle such miracles. And, and so, you know, excise these instances from their Bibles. They can't handle it. I mean, it, it, but if you... If you are a Christian, you believe an omnipotent God created the world and everything in it, including water and the quality of liquid. You believe that God did that. That's, God owns that because he created it. right? You believe that the three persons of the one God covenanted and the son, in obedience to his father, took on flesh and was born of a woman. right? We... We have already in this book seen Jesus turn water into wine. He created matter when he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and dried fish. There is nothing more miraculous in Jesus walking on water than those things. I suppose he could have just appeared, but he walked. And we assume he did that to teach the apostles something. And therefore to teach us as it's recorded to us by one of those apostles. And so what was he teaching them? First, 
God is testing them. God is testing these men. That is what trials come upon us for, is it not? Uh, Peter, one of the men on this boat, would later write, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Right? And James says, this is Jesus' brother, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These men would be put through intense trials for their faith, and they would have to know Jesus was with them. They would have to remember that. They would have to know that as the the list of trials would be coming up. They would have had the experience of ravaging winds and the struggle of the oars and then Jesus' unexpected arrival. They would have this experience imprinted on their memories. So as they faced persecution in the cities and the odds seemed stacked against them wherever they went, their faith would persevere as they remembered that night. Jesus, we, we, were, we were struggling and fearful of death and Jesus came to our rescue. So he's testing them. So they might be mature in the faith. He's maturing them through this process. This is a test that came to them to produce endurance. Ryle writes, affliction and crosses are the grindstones on which God is constantly sharpening those instruments which he uses most. Affliction is God's grindstone. And he hones us through those things. Calvin says, the Lord often makes his people fall into alarming dangers that they may more plainly and familiarly recognize him in their deliverance. Right? Into dangers so that God can come and rescue you and you can acknowledge that God did that for you. Your tests are no different. Each of your tests that God brings upon you are no different. God desires us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the way he produces that in us is by various and fiery trials. Right? And as you have seen God bring the test, but also lead you through the test, you have then a maturing faith that will be able to endure whatsoever he brings to you. So do not despise the test. Right? Do not despise the test. If you've seen maturity come from previous tests, why would we go on despising the test? Right? But, but the discipline of the Lord is never pleasant in the moment. But if you despise the test, it is tempting to then begin despising the tester. Right? It's, just, it's easy to start despising God for pressing down upon you taking things away from you, losing friends, taking your health, right, loss of income. And yet know that those fiery tests, those difficulties are there for your building up. Second, here's another thing I believe Jesus was teaching those disciples on that stormy night when he walked on the water. He was teaching them of his power. 
they would never have seen anything like they were seeing. They would have thought they were hallucinating fact, but, but they do realize that it is Jesus, and they have to deal with the fact that his power is more than any other prophet. And it's on display right before them. Moses split the sea, but Jesus walked on it, right? I suppose the Israelites could have walked on the water, but room is left there in that miracle so that Jesus can do this one. And as I said before, the creator of the rules of nature is not bound by the rules of nature. Most of his life, he did live bound by the the rules of nature. He, He lived as ordinary men lived, but on this occasion, he does not. Right? He testified and is testifying in that moment to his power before these disciples, and it is extraordinary power. There was another time on the sea when he awed the disciples with his power. This time, when they were crossing the sea, Jesus went with them. He was in the boat with them this time. And it says in Luke 8, now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up, and he rebuked the wind. And the surging waves, and they obeyed him, and they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? They were fearful, it says, and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. As many times as we would have liked, we have never been able to command, to do, to command the weather to do as we'd like. Right? Many times we wish we could, especially when we have some glorious outing, picnic planned. We would love to command the winds. The Son of God, though, whom all things, through whom all things were made, has that kind of power and can easily tell the wind to stop blowing as it's as easy for him as standing up from sitting. He can do that, and he did it. And so he's, he's showing the apostles his power. Third, in the stilling of the winds and his walking on the water, in both circumstances, do you know what reaction? Did you pick up what reaction it led to? It led to fear. It led to fear. The disciples, when they heard him rebuke the wind and the waves, were fearful. The disciples, when, when they saw Jesus walking on the water, drawing near to the boat, were fearful. They were afraid. Fear was the response of these men to the power of God, and that is always appropriate. Fear of God. Fear of God is a faithful response, even in the presence of authorities in this world, right? Think of this circumstance. Even in in the presence of the authorities of this world, other people, we get anxious and fearful when we're in the presence of of an authority, Step into the office of the governor of the state of South Carolina, and you'll probably be a little bit anxious. 
You'll watch what you say. You'll think through it. You'll be aware that this, was, this is a man who has authority. Right? And uh, there are many reasons for that. But here these men are realizing that they are in the presence of God himself. This is no mere manly authority. This is, this is the presence of God himself. He walked on water. If, if they didn't respond with fear, if they instead started to see it as a, you know, a, a stellar opportunity to increase their influence on social media, it would have been clear they had missed the point, right? Taking a, taking a selfie with Jesus walking in the water in the background. Everybody would have thought it was photoshopped anyway. But Jesus is here flexing his muscles. He's, he's flexing divine muscles that these men will never have. right? And those muscles are nothing less than omnipotence. He has power over everything. Jesus has power over everything that masters us. He has power over those things that we have not even an inkling of power. Right? They talk about, it's probably a joke, but they talk about setting off nukes to, to stop hurricanes and stuff. Yeah, right. That's, a, that's nothing. And, you know, what could go wrong? Right? These men properly fear being in the presence of God, and fear is the beginning of wisdom. Because of this experience, they will be wise. And fear is the doorway, right? Fear is the doorway that leads to true wisdom. We think knowledge and study and PhDs are the doorway to wisdom, but really it's fear. Fear is the doorway to wisdom. If you have no fear of God, then you have not properly responded to his presence. If we are like that, we are blind, and being blind, we think God is weak or even nothing, that there is no God, right? It was, only, it was the only proper response for these men. Jesus scares them, and that leads them to wisdom. Wisdom they would need as they went through all the nations, right, with Jesus' delegated authority. Fourth, we learn of Jesus' compassion. And this is very sweet, isn't it? Seeing their fearfulness, Jesus says, It is I. Do not be afraid. Isn't that sweet? You know, our, our children come into our bedroom and at night, the younger kids, sometimes just very fearful, anxious. And they just want to be with us. They want to be in our presence, right? And they just want a comforting word. And we should remember this one for them, right? Do not be afraid. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. Now, this isn't a contradiction to what I just said, that their fear was not good. It was right. What we see here is not a rebuke of their fear as if Jesus were saying it was not right to fear him. 
What we see here is Jesus, Jesus comforting them even in the midst of good fear. He, he's being tender toward their feelings, which are making them miserable at the moment. Fear, though, is, though good, is very hard to endure. It's, it's torture to endure fear and anxiety. Right? And what kindness it is for Jesus to quickly offer them comfort. Right? They are not just fearing him. They are fearing the wind and the waves. They are fearing the darkness. They are fearing uh, for their lives. And Jesus, just in a few words, puts them at ease. Ryle makes this application. He says, many of the things which now frighten Christians and fill them with anxiety would cease to frighten them if they would endeavor to see the Lord Jesus in all, ordering every providence and overruling everything so that not a hair falls to the ground without him. They are happy who can hear his voice through the thickest clouds and darkness and above the loudest winds and storms saying, it is I, do not be afraid. God offers to us through prayer and petition a peace that surpasses understanding even. Right? Our lives seem to go from, from fear to fear. And mankind looks to science or to pleasure or to teddy bears and chocolate right, to hold their fears back. But you, Christian, have an, have an open conduit to the ear of the Almighty God. So when you pray, you may truly enjoy the peace that surpasses understanding, that peace which guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. His power scares us, but when we, we know by faith that he is for us and not against us, we are comforted. His power is every bit of our comfort. And this is why it is said that in, in the godly fear and love embrace, right? The power of God is both terrifying and our only hope of comfort. It's terrifying. It, 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 is, it, it tears us apart and brings us back together. Now, after Jesus speaks, the text says the disciples were then willing to receive him into the boat. <laughs> right? He comforts them and they're like, okay, okay, come on. Come on in. Um, glad it's you. All right, they are relieved to know that it is their Christ. From fear to a strong desire then to have Jesus on the boat with them, they want to be in his presence. And he undoubtedly would be a good captain of that boat. Calvin says, Believers who know that he is given to them to make propitiation... As soon as they hear his name, which is a sure pledge to them both of the love of God and of their salvation, take courage as if they had been raised from death to life, calmly look at the clear sky, dwell quietly on earth, and victorious over every calamity, take him for their shield against all dangers. And in fact... Jesus was a good captain, and he brings them through all the dangers that night. Our text makes it seem as if he teleported into that harbor, but I don't think it needs to be read that way. The Gospels, the other Gospels mention that the wind stopped, and so they would have no problem rowing into the harbor. 
So I think that the text is merely saying that in their struggles and in their trauma of the events, they had lost track of where they were. And when Jesus calmed things, they were close at harbor. And then when Jesus enters the boat, they shortly make it to harbor. So, dear brothers and sisters, this Jesus who walked on water, who inspired fear in the disciples, who calmed their fears and stilled the storm, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Though you have not seen him walk on the water, the spirit at work in you convinces you that he has and he could even now. Right? The Spirit convinces you that he is powerful and his presence, if we've been washed clean, will bring us safe harbor. We will all face tests in this life. They are from God, the last of which will be our deaths when we pass from this world to the next. It's my hope and prayer that when you face that storm of death, you will hear Jesus say, It is I, do not be afraid. Right? Isn't that your hope? Jesus, come and whisper that in your ear as you're dying through his spirit. It's I, don't be afraid. Amen?